Good morning, COV. How are you? Good. We are continuing our series today known as Done, as you saw in the video, as you see on the slide. And one of the things we try to make clear often, it's not about what we do. It's about what God has already done through Jesus's perfect life lived, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming back and we ought to be excited about this. And so today begins, uh, as uh, Barbara read, we see this idea that throughout this letter, throughout 1 John, John is speaking about contrast. He speaks at the beginning of the letter between light and darkness. Then he spent time describing life and death. Then we read about truth and lies. And last week, John contrast, or uh, that was last week. And today, we're going to hear a little bit more about God uh, and the devil and how God and John, how he contrasts these two. And today, keeping with that contrast, we will see the difference between love and hate. And while I know that I think I have a grasp of the difference, and I assume you have a grasp of the difference, one being good, one being bad, one being of God, one being of the devil, light, darkness, life, death, etc., I think John makes a case today in this passage that we're going to study how he really differentiates the two emotions biblically in a way that perhaps I personally have never really thought about. Now, I want to confess, and I kind of confessed this before, but I want to confess that as I came to this passage, as I spent time in this passage, it convicted me. It showed me how I was doing stuff wrong. And at the end of the message, I'll tell you what had changed. And I'll tell you what it did, and I hope, if you're like me, you too will perhaps see how maybe you've been doing something wrong, and you can repent, and you can turn to Christ. Let's begin in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. John is alluding to a believer's new birth, what you have heard from the beginning, what you have first believed that we should love one another. Not that this is what justifies us, but this is what differentiates us from who we once were. Loving one another is a family trait of God's children. Loving one another is a family trait of God's children. And as a family trait, this isn't something that we try really hard to do and act as if, oh, we're going to do this. I'm just going to love someone today. That's not how this works. It is something that comes from being God's people. So John, rather than telling us about how to be saved, is referring to what God began to do in once, or began to do in each of us once he decided to save us. We begin to love one another. And you may say, but I loved many people a whole lot prior to a commitment to Jesus. And I would say, you're right, you did. You loved and you cared and you did things to show others that you loved them. And I don't disagree, nor do I think that your love for someone before Christ was in vain. But what I think happens when you first believe, when you first understand that God loves you, that he cares for you, that while you were at your worst, Christ died for you and sacrificed himself for you. When you first believe this, you now have seen what the love of God looks like. And the love of God and the love from God is different than your love for your spouse or your kids or your parents or your siblings or your friends without Christ. 
different because you have seen God knowing everything about you, knowing every evil thought, knowing every shameful action, knowing all the anger, knowing all the hate, knowing all the malice, knowing that you have had towards other people and possibly even towards him. And yet he still loved you. And he still loves you in spite of you. And when I say that, I mean it. You are great, at least on the outside, and many love you because of what you project and perhaps what you do for them. But God's love, the love that we're talking about, the love that John's writing about, it's all knowing, it's unconditional, and it's sacrificial without expectation of reciprocation. And God in his love gives us his spirit. He gives us his seed. He gives us his DNA to love others in a godly way that only God can do. So you, prior to Christ, loved others. Sure you did. But I don't think you can say you loved others with God's love, can you? And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's probably really difficult for us to love people now the way that Christ loves us. Yet as the great theologian Jim Carrey once so eloquently put it in his film masterpiece, Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance. Yes. I am saying there's a chance, there is a possibility, there is an ability to love others the way that God loves us. Not completely, not perfectly like he does to us, but through his spirit residing in us and dominating us, we then can love others in a way that is godly, in a way that is gracious, in a way that does not reek of self-centered love, but instead smells like sacrificial love, which is what our Lord showed us and what he did for us. So with that in mind, look at how John contrasts love for one another, other believers, and what we should not do or be like. Verse 12, do not be like Cain, okay, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember? I don't know if you remember this. We preached through Cain and Abel. We studied this because we were going through Genesis, and we're going to be done probably the year Jesus comes back, to be honest. And we studied in Genesis. It was back on March 7th, 2021. Anyone remember this sermon? Probably not. It was on video. Maybe you do. And we were doing services online at that time. And the reality is that this explanation that John is coming up with, that he's pointing back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, which John refers to, has a lot of implications of what someone who does not love does, either implicitly or indirectly. So we're going to go back to Genesis 4 and just read a little bit. I'm sure all of you have read this today, but we're just going to recap it. Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, starting in the second half of it through, uh, I don't know, 9 or so. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. (laughs) While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that escalated really quickly, didn't it? And jealousy bred anger, which bred murder. It would be easy to look at these two different offerings that both Cain and Abel had and assume that Abel's was better than Cain's offering. But I think this inclusion in Scripture shows us, one, it's the first time worship happens in the biblical narrative. Offerings were given to God. And it's also the first time murder takes place when Cain murders his brother Abel. And I think this example really does point us to our motivations. Abel's offering, while easily seen as better, is only better because of the motivation behind it, not the actual thing that was sacrificed. Let me, let me put it this way, all right? <clears throat> I'm not a good singer, and I'm not going to exemplify this for you. I'm just, when I sing, uh, my dog runs away, all right? Let's just put it that way. I am not the best singer in the world, but let's say you were an amazing singer. Maybe you want to sing songs that exalt Jesus, but you're doing it for show, or you're doing it for man's praise, then even my singing, which sounds terrible, but is because I want to praise Jesus, is more acceptable to God. And Cain's motivation is seen when he was so jealous and so angry that God accepted his brother's worship over his, and then he decided to murder Abel. And John is contrasting loving one another. And being like Cain is as contrasting as they come in a worldly sense, as Abel's actions were seen as righteous and Cain's were seen as evil. And why were Abel's righteous? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is And it is by faith that we, if we have come to Christ, are righteous. Remember last week, this is a point I want to keep making. It is by believing that Jesus is our righteousness that any of us are righteous. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how much you project a a goodness or a righteousness. It is by believing that Jesus is our righteousness that you become righteous. And yet Abel, who by faith gave an acceptable offering to God, was hated by Cain. Why? Because his actions were compelled by love from and for God. And Cain could not understand, nor could he do the same. So when John says what he says next, it takes on a much broader meaning. Here's what he says, verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. John, speaking to the believers in Ephesus, and I'd contend to us today points out that the world hating us should not be that surprising to us, coming out of why Cain hated Abel. Are you and I of the same faith of Abel? Do we believe God at his word? Do we worship God? Do we do things out of love from and for God? Then the world will hate us. If they know it's for that reason, because of our faith or not, we will experience hate. It's not like The Holy Spirit was saying, no, it'll be easy. Speaking through John, he said, the world will hate you. 
And yet when I read that verse, without the verses leading up to it, I think it becomes liberty for people in the name of the Lord to just be jerks. That's not the worst word I'm going to say today, by the way. From the Bible preacher, if you're listening to this on podcast, I use the bunny rabbit quotes. From the Bible preacher who thinks that judging people's actions gives them the right to assume the eternal destination, to the people that treat Jesus as a mascot for their political agenda, to the person who would never admit any wrongdoing themselves, but exalts themselves by differentiating themselves from anyone who does fail and makes mistakes and owns it. The world hating you comes out of a lack of understanding of grace. And honestly, the supposed Christians are the ones that make that message diluted and unlegible. When we treat people like they don't deserve grace, when we didn't deserve it ourselves. A big difference between a true believer and a non-believer is one stumbled upon grace, and the other either didn't hear it or didn't want to believe it. So friends, followers of Jesus, if that is how you identify, listen, your faith will bother some who are misunderstanding of your faith. And it doesn't just happen because you're vocal about your faith. It happens because we are different than someone who is yet to receive the grace offered in Jesus. But don't use your faith. This is kind of me just preaching at you personally. Please don't use your faith as an excuse to why someone doesn't like you. Well, they don't like me because I'm a Christian. How would they even know you're a Christian? And a biblical faith will contrast with the world. And sometimes, even within a church, but your responsibility, believer, is not to look at the world as an us and them, but rather look at other people in need of the same grace that God has given you. And there, for me, lies the trouble. If you came here and you're like, oh, well, I hope the holy pastor tells us a bunch of stuff about how to be holy, this passage showed me how unholy, unfortunately, in the way I act, I am. When I have been offended, this is confession time, when I have been offended, when I have been disrespected or treated poorly by a fellow believer, and unfortunately this happens, I don't want to love them. My natural inclination, honestly, let me just be real, it's to fight. To find ways to treat others how I felt they treated me, and everything in me wants to revert back to who I was and whose I was before Christ. Am I alone in this? Can a few of us be honest? Can I not be on an island? Okay, thanks, Rachel. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Jason. Are you all the turn-your-other-cheek kind of people, or does that require God's intervention? I think it requires God's intervention. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. <sighs> See, John points out that our death to life journey has taken place because we love. Not in self-interest, not out of self-indulgence, but out of first being loved by God, and then we can also love people unworthy of gracious love as God has loved us because we too were unworthy. And then John says, anyone who does not love remains in death. Now, with all that context of what Christianity is, if you've been listening to the series, if you've heard us week in, week out, here's some things that we keep saying. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about what you do, but rather whose you are. 
Abiding is not trying, it's relying on God. We cannot then read this sentence and throw all of that out the window. What John is pointing out is those who love like God, who have God love others through them, they are the ones who God has obviously taken from death to life. This love is not something that you muster up. It is something that comes out of you because God is in you. It's not something you muster up. It's something that comes out of you. Why? Because God is in you. Verse 15. I'll let that sit for a second. Verse 15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. John's saying it. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. Okay, so not a fun verse, but I didn't give it to Ruth this time, so... And if I'm really honest, as I studied this passage, as I looked at all of these verses, as I looked, them together, looked at them together in context, I just kind of want to excuse this verse and move on. Kind of like we all do when it comes to someone who claims the same Jesus as we do, but they infuriate us. Or as one of our staff members said, as we discussed this passage this week in staff meeting, we all have people in the church that we can't stand. Now, I'm not going to tell you who it was but she's been in the church for like 60 years. So I'll let your imagination run wild on that one. <laughs> now she clarified, she didn't mean anyone in this church, currently at least. And I think that's wonderful. But we all know people who grace the inside of church buildings that we just cannot stand. Can we be real about this? Talk back. Yes, be honest, murderers. I mean, sorry, sorry. I'm not trying to make fun of it, but what I'm trying to tell you is we struggle with people. Ministry would be hella easy without people, just for the record. And we all have people that get on our nerves, sin against us, or maybe sin against the way we want them to behave. And then how do we react to them when their name comes up? when we see them in person, when their photo is seen on some social media thing. As we asked earlier in the service, how do you treat this person practically? How do you treat the person you just do not like? And I want to be really real with you, so I'm just going to keep confessing until you, someone, the elders decide to fire me, all right? I want to be really real. I want those people that are in the faith that are frustrating me and infuriating me, I just want them to cease to exist. No big deal. Or at least cease to be in my line of vision. Am I the only one? You guys are liars. Yes, I am not the only one. And here's the thing about me. I'm usually down for conflict. Like, not like I like it but I don't run from it. I don't avoid it generally. But when I get to the point of hate, and this is just me being honest, I think avoidance is far more my style. I just decide that they're no longer worth the effort. And that is my judgment of hate. So what do we do? Because John isn't saying that you get a pass if they offended you. I think he's once again pointing out what the person with the seed of God, with the spirit of God, does. And the contrast is 
The one who refuses to believe this, refuses to believe that God can actually justify someone and has given them their spirit and, or his spirit, and Jesus is their righteousness. If someone is unwilling to really even look at a person who has frustrated them but claims to be in Jesus, maybe it's because we're being led and dominated not by the spirit, but maybe you and I have chosen to be dominated or led by what? Who do we belong to when we hate and spew and live out hate? Who do we belong to? Well, John said Cain belonged to the evil one. And it is out of that whose he was that Cain then acted out and acted like his master. Does this mean that each of us hate our brother or sister in the faith are of the devil? No, not necessarily, but maybe. Listen, hate did not originate from man, just as love did not originate from man. Both came from an outside source. God is love and devil. The devil, he's hate. The devil's love language, if you will, is that he wants to get one another to hate one another. And his scheme of getting God's children to hate one another, well, he's pretty good at it. Can we be real? We don't really agree on stuff in the church, do we? Like, not necessarily in here, like right now, because you're like, oh, some people aren't here, so they're the ones I don't agree with. Whatever, whatever. But don't we disagree with other people that claim the same Jesus we claim? That's honestly why there are so many denominations in Christianity. And also, it's a great way to dilute and perverse the message of the gospel in the first place. We can't agree on liturgy. We can't agree on emphasis. We can't agree on purpose, piety, politics, parenting, or sin, the gospel, trinity, salvation, interpretation of the Bible, and the like. And then the outside world looks at the church and says, well, why should I agree with you when you can't even agree with each other? And then I wonder, I just wonder, if Jesus knew this was going to be the exact problem of the church of the living God when he said this to his first small group, if you will, his first community group, his disciples. John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's almost as if Jesus knew that his people weren't going to get along. Beginning with his disciples who were going to struggle to love one another. There were some fishermen and some blue collar workers. There was a zealot and a tax collector. And guess what? They didn't always get along. Imagine that. Did you know we're not all exactly the same within the church? I mean, this is a small sample size of we as the church, but look at the people in here. We're not all identical. We don't all have the same preferences or the same cultures. It's almost like being God's people means we come together in spite of our differences because our differences are not the point and our differences are not what we prioritize over God and his glory. So hatred towards others who have been saved by grace is dishonoring of that grace. And it tends to be seen as we thinking they don't deserve grace while inadvertently saying that we somehow deserve it. And then you and I, if we're real, if we're honest, we identify far more with the Pharisee than the humble tax collector in Jesus' parable. Let me read it to you. 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Lay it out, Luke. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and that tax collector. I'm just assuming he pointed. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get and I vote Republican. Oh, sorry. 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So anything that you think makes you right with God, other than your desperate need for God and understanding that it is Jesus, it's not who you vote for, it's not what you focus on, it's not how you live your life, it is who you believe in. And so let me break it down for all y'all especially those of us who claim we really believe and emphasize the gospel. And I think this about me. To hate your brother or sister in the faith is to say that grace wasn't enough for them and grace wasn't enough for you. Because their actions, you're saying, now dictate their worth rather than Jesus and his perfect record gifted to each person who believes. I don't like this sermon. I don't like sharing this sermon. I don't like it when the word convicts me, but I like it when the word changes me. And if I'm going to continue to be real, I have some frustrations. I even have some anger towards some so-called believers, and I can self-justify and think that my anger and hate is justified. And here's the crazy part. My hate and anger is justified according to the world, but I'm supposed to not be of this world, church. And the world hates me if I really believe the gospel. And instead, I'm looking for their affirmation because I've misunderstood, prioritized, and maybe not even believed the gospel. Well, now I have a problem because I identify with the gospel of grace found in the person and work of Jesus. And now I see how hate of this world is not of, or hate is of this world, but it's not of our God. It's not of the gospel. And once again, I have to admit my hypocrisy and repent. Did you all know you're hypocrites? <laughs> Welcome to church. It's where we hang out. And I have to admit my hypocrisy and I have to repent. I have to. Not because I'm afraid of losing my salvation. God ain't going to give me something he's going to take back. I'm not afraid to lose my salvation, but because God in his infinite knowledge knew that I, forget all y'all, I needed this passage, especially right now, to continue to, by faith, obey God out of his love for me and my love for him. So how do we know what love is? I'm glad you asked. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus did lay down his life. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for the sins of many. And while we cannot be crucified for anyone's sins, we too can live sacrificially 
with others in mind. So how do we do this practically? All right, I need you guys to get out your pens if you're not, if you're writing down your notes. I, I'm gonna tell you how to do this practically. Get ready, here we go. Wait for it. How do you sacrificially love others? How do you do it practically? You don't. This is not practical. This is supernatural. This all stems from understanding that God loved you and by abiding in that love. Remember, abiding is not trying really hard. Abiding is not attempting to do something right and then treat that as our righteousness because that's what the Pharisees did. No, as a spirit-indwelled believer, we abide. We rely on God to love others using us because we are not the point. We are the conduit. So look to Jesus, church. Care for others. Honestly, when someone I love, someone who's close to me, someone who I have a relationship with has a problem, I don't really spend a lot of, bunch of time attempting to figure out how to help. I really just go to them. I find things that they need. I lend a helping hand. I just do it. Rather than spending time analyzing what we should do, we love, we care, and we give of ourselves any way that we can. That is laying down your life for your brothers and sisters. So who are your brothers and sisters? Thank you so much for asking. I think generally we think anyone who says, yes, I'm a Christian, has a little fish on the back of their car. If you do, I'm not making fun of you. I didn't know you had one. But if the world has taught us anything... And can I just be real, real quick? If the world has taught us anything in the past few decades, it has taught us that not everyone who says that there's something actually is that thing. Oh, yeah, I said it. And I believe coming out of what John was communicating earlier in this letter, verse 6 of 1 John 1, this is more contextual of what, who he's speaking to. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Verse 19 of chapter 2, they went out from us because, but they did not really belong to us, for had they belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. And so there are a lot of people that claim they may be a brother or sister, but in reality, their actions expose them. And a relationship isn't assumed in order to really know if a person is a brother or sister. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the brother or sister that John's speaking to, specifically in Ephesus, is the people that are in your community, that are around you, that are not opting out from being your friend, being in relationship with you. And so I know it's easy to read this and think, I need to lay down my life for any and everyone. And while there are other passages that might allude to that, this passage, the one we're studying in 1 John, is speaking about other believers that you have relationship with. Because John is pointing out that we need to love and care for those God has placed in our, here's a word I haven't used in a long time, it's yogurt, oikos. Not the people who choose not to be in our sphere of influence or have left because they, you have told them the truth, but our sphere of influence who are in relationship that believe the same gospel you believe. So with that in mind, 
Let's look at how John drives home the point of how we care, love, and sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in the faith. And buckle up, buttercup, it's going to be rough. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Okay, I am not against helping people that are less fortunate by any means. I am incredibly blessed, and I I don't deserve it. But I think what John is specifically talking about is the people that you're in relationship with. If anyone has excess, if you will, but sees a brother or sister in relationship without, and chooses to have no pity, oh oh boy, this word... (laughs) Uh, Malik, we were talking about this passage in staff meeting, obviously, because someone who's been in staff for 60 years uh, made that other comment. But Malik pointed out that this word, no pity, it means locked up or shut down. It is used in some other contexts, like here in Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So this lack of pity, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Let me look at the congregation. Oh boy. The formal definition, well, it's kind of hilarious, but it's also kind of crass. So if, if vulgar things, get ready for earmuffs if you need that. If the person who has material possessions and does not take pity on a brother or sister, the formal definition for the word pity, or no pity, to shut up the bowels of compassion. That's the definition. To have no pity is to shut up the bowels of compassion. Do you see what this is implying? Maybe not. To have much and to not care for those who don't in relationship within your, uh, your community have anything. To not care for one another is, I'm going to give two terms. First, to be spiritually constipated. Okay? That's the easy one. (laughs) Or honestly, if you claim that you love someone and a brother or sister is in need and you have material possessions and you don't care for them, honestly, it seems that John is implying earmuffs, you ready? That you're full of crap. You're an imposter. Why? Because John then says, how can the love of God be in that person? And if you are utterly offended by what John is communicating, the correct email is not Mike at CO Valley, it's the Holy Spirit at the kingdom of God.com, okay? This is rough. This is a hard saying, and yet John, he's not wrong, is he? So with that in mind, Look at the final verse that we're going to study today. Verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is not how John ends the letter, but I think he's ending his thought and bringing everything together here with this verse. Let us not say we love without actually loving someone. Did you hear what I said? Let's not say we love without actually loving. You might hear that one way or another. It kind of has a double meaning, and that is intentional. John is saying, do not love with empty words. 
love with substance. Look at how he concludes. He says, love with actions and in truth. This is very similar to what James points out about caring for someone and what our faith looks like. In truth means with integrity, to be genuine, to love with just words, or to attempt to love someone when you don't really love them, it lacks substance. It's untrue. It's a lie. And John says to love others with actions and truth, to love sincerely. The Greek word's definition is, is this. It's often in the sense of visible and verifiable reality demonstrated by facts and actual events or proven character. To love in truth is demonstration of reality rather than the creation of some reality. To love insincerely is to love without God. I'll let that sit there. To love insincerely is to love without God. And there is the struggle. Those who know God love on behalf of God. Those who know God love on behalf of God. And those who love for any other reason other than God, they may love, but they do not love on behalf of God. And if we could afford it, I'd drop the mic right there. But I got one more thing. Worship team, come on up. I want to conclude with this thought about this sermon. Like, you guys are all hearing it now, and you're, you might leave and be like, ouch! Okay? I get it. But I've had to wrestle with this all week and been punched in the shoulder multiple times spiritually. This message showed me how I'm doing stuff wrong. I'm trying to love people because I'm supposed to. I'm trying to love people because I get paid to. That's hella religious. And then when I do attempt to love them, it actually feels insincere. Why? Because it is. And then I get frustrated because they're not as grateful as I want them to be or I think they should be. But sometimes when I love insincerely, if I'm real, a fondness over time grows for them. And yet I get pretty infatuated with myself and think, boy, do I love people well. <laughs> and yet what John is pointing out is not what we do to prove our faith, but rather what our faith does, which is to love the one another's, the brothers and sisters in the faith, through genuine, sincere love that God has lavished on us. And you and we get to love one another with a godly love that comes from God. So yeah, I've been doing things wrong, if I'm honest. And honestly, every time we open the word, we should allow the word to tell us, hey, you're, you're off. I've been misunderstanding God's commands. But you know what it did? You know what this passage did for me? You know what this passage affirmed in me and changed in me? It made me believe the gospel more. And there is nothing, I mean nothing, that is more important than believing the gospel more each day. The gospel, the finished work of Jesus on behalf of me, a sinner, and that I can stop trying and I can abide. And as I do, God in his perfect and pleasing will makes me more like Christ. Oh, if we would believe the gospel more each 
today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. And maybe you need to fill out a prayer request and confess. Maybe you need to confess to God first, and maybe you need to sit or stand there while we sing and, and have, do work with God. But once a month, we try to encourage people to uh, be prayed for by people in the community. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to have a lot of people do it. I'm just going to invite Mike and Karen. Sorry, I didn't tell you guys. Would you guys come up here? They're going to play. Dan and Melanie, would you guys go in that corner? Or that corner, whichever you choose. Uh, probably that one. There's less stuff. So yeah, that corner. And we're going to sing. And these two couples, they're going to have the opportunity that if you feel led and comfortable and willing to be prayed for, go to either of them. If you don't know them, great. If you do know them, great. But if you need to confess, hey, I haven't been loving people with God's love even though I know him. Or maybe I need faith to forgive someone. Come and ask for prayer while we sing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you. I always thank you when the word's fun. And so, Lord, I should thank you when it's not fun because I know you're doing work in that lack of fun. Most importantly, God, I thank you that your word's true and that it doesn't contradict itself, but it contradicts me. And so would we be a people that realize and grasp and understand and undertake the goodness of knowing that it's not about us. It's about what Jesus has already done on our behalf. And may we live as Jesus lived. May we love as Jesus loved, not perfectly, but pursuing the perfect one who is going to change us through the working of the Spirit. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.